is sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. 75 years ago, hundreds of thousands of young soldiers, sailors, and airmen left these shores in the cause of freedom. It is with humility and pleasure on behalf of the entire country, indeed, the whole free world, that I say to you all, thank you. It was here that tens of thousands of the Americans came. The GIs who boarded the landing craft that morning knew that they carried on their shoulders not just the pack of a soldier, but the fate of the world. In defeating that evil, they left a legacy that will last not only for a thousand years, but for all time. May God bless our great veterans. May God bless our allies. May God bless the heroes of D-Day. And may God bless America. And now, Stacey Washington. Welcome back. Thank you so much for holding on. If you want to join the show, you're welcome. 866-963-2037. 866-963-2037. I'm Stacey Washington, host of Stacey on the Right here on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. So blessed to be with you today. We are commemorating D-Day all day today, and we just feel the blessings of the Lord, the mighty hand of God and his providence are so strong upon this nation, and we want to maintain that, and we want to come into right relationship with him and be obedient so that we can continue to receive all that he has for us. And um, winning wars is one of the things that God allows people who um, you know are under his favor to do. Um, so I want to go back to the phones, AJ in Alabama. Hey, AJ, thanks for calling the show today. Hey, Stacey. Uh, held on. I lost. We lose you here uh, at three o'clock, but I held on because I, I tried to call you two weeks ago. And Stacey, I just wanted to tell you two shade times, ten times infinity. Stacey, let me tell you something. You are exactly <laughs> right. You are not the only one. And, and I know you get it from your, your emailers and your callers. We are sick, sick, sick and tired, Stacey, of these fake Republicans up there. And all they do every election they ride in on Donald Trump's coattail and they get mm-hmm. reelected. And I'm mm-hmm. telling you, you got eight congressmen who you covered already, Stacey, mm-hmm. who, who voted for that Equality Act, for example. And I'm telling you, we got to weed them out, Stacey. Stacey, I know you are. Please stay with it. And I'm telling you, Stacey, everybody who's legitimate media, like yourself, like Sandy Rios, and like Janet Medford and a, and a host mm-hmm. of others, the legitimate ones, not the fake ones, not the PC politically correct ones, Stacey. I'm a vet like you. So is my dad. So my, I, I told him before, I, Stacey, we are sick of them. We sick have got them. to stay on point on these. You had 24 Republican senators last July. You remember, Stacey, voted mm-hmm. for the transgender recruitment. I can't believe 24 that. 24 out of 50-something Republican senators voted for that crap. And they're still sitting up there in those seats. So They should I, be gone. Larry, when that, when that vote comes to the Equality Act with the Senate, I hope 24 of them, at least half of them, don't say yes. I know. And, and that's what I've been worried about is, is we've seen them 
turncoat before. It's like somebody else possesses their bodies and everything they ran on, they forget. It's like they literally forget that they told us that the reason you have to send me to Congress because you have to send me to the Senate. I'm going to be your voice there. I'm going to put my foot. I'm going to stand in front of these these onslaughts against your children, your religious freedom, your religious liberty against the unborn, against your own children who are in schools. They promise so big and then they get there and I have no idea what happens. And remember, I served on school boards, so I've been under pressure before to vote this way or that way. And I know it's not the same. School board is so tiny but con- and Congress is so much bigger, but it is kind of the same because it's people. And it is kind of the same because you have to remember what you promise people. Like you have to either your word means nothing, which is what I think about these rhinos. Their word means nothing or they lied. Either way, their word means nothing. You can't say to somebody over and over and over again, they travel around and they say things like, you know what, AJ, when I get to Washington, D.C., I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to support the president's agenda. Then they get there. And they're standing with Mitch McConnell. Well, we, we don't support terror. So what do you support? Exactly what do you think we should do about illegal immigration if he's not allowed to do anything? And so I'm with you. If we, if we don't start voting them out and paying them back for what they're doing, then we might as well just stop everything. Just forget about Washington, D.C. If we're not going to manage them and we're not going to tell them what to do. Oh, and thank you for your service, AJ. I, I appreciate when you call in. Thank you. Um, I just get burnt up. Like I... You know how it is when you, you know, it's just like, it's, it's terrible. There's no analogy that works. I just get lit up about this and it's, it's wrong for these people to lie to us. And, and it's even more wrong for us to let them get away with it. The names we, we post them on Facebook, you know, where I'm, and I'm going to start, I've already started putting more of it on stacyontheright.com and it's going to be a process of gradually moving over there, you know, for most of the content and links because of what I'm seeing, like a friend of mine uh, from way, way back comes on the show often, Stephen Solomon. He actually had his Facebook page deleted for no reason. He said it was just growing and it was looking so good. And he actually had a donate button on there that Facebook allows you to have your people who like your page donate to you. And he was earning a good amount of money from that. And, and the page was growing at about 600 likes a week. And what happened with no notice at all, he just well, I can't say no notice. He wakes up and the page is gone. And in his email box is a note from Facebook saying he violated community standards, but they wouldn't say what they wouldn't tell him which post it was. The page was gone and they've never restored it. So all that work, everything he put into it, they just eliminated it. They also have a blacklist of conservatives that, and Candace Owens and Brigitte Gabriel are on there. And I wonder to myself, well, I'm such small potatoes compared to those ones. I wonder if I'm on there. Well, I'm not going to wait for them to, you know, pluck me off. If you can't find me anywhere, you can always go to StaceyOnTheRight.com. You know that. It's the same name as the show. You can always find the content and and links to what we're doing there. So I mentioned junior senator from the great state of Missouri, Josh Hawley, and this judicial nominee, Bergram. And I want to, you know, I rarely see... Senator Hawley, this worked up. He's really kind of, I wouldn't say he's bland, but he's a more laid back type of a person. But apparently when he gets mad about the law, he can really get upset. Take a listen to this exchange. It's Hawley versus Bergram in number five. 
Let me ask you something else. In the same masterpiece cake shop case, Justice Kennedy wrote that the government also demonstrated impermissible hostility toward religious believers when it questioned the sincerity of their religious beliefs. You do exactly the same thing in your brief in the East Lansing case. That's a problem, don't you think? Senator, neither neither the brief nor my client has ever questioned the sincerity of their religion. You certainly do. You say that they, do, they apply the teachings of their, of their faith quite selectively. That's your phrase, is it not? Did yes, you write those words? I did, Senator, but... Don't I, you think that's I'm questioning not, the sincerity of no, their faith, that a, they apply it quite selectively? Not at all. Well, what are you trying to say there? That they're hypocrites? No, I'm, I'm not. Well, I, go ahead, explain. I believe that they, that they sincerely believe the position that they take. But they apply it quite selectively? At times. Meaning what? What are we to infer from that? I, I'm, not sure, I, I'm not sure I understand your question. Oh, I think you understand it. You just don't want to answer it. No, Senator, that's not true. What I, is it that we are to infer from your questioning of whether or not they actually apply the, follow the teachings of their faith faithfully? Don't you think that's questioning the sincerity of their faith? I, I disagree, Senator. Well, all I can tell you is I, I am shocked by the statements that I read in your briefs. I am shocked by this kind of language. I'm particularly shocked by it in light of the Supreme Court's clear teaching that this kind of animus and these kind of hateful comparisons are out of step with the protections of our law and are, are, are not permissible. I mean, this case, the Masterpiece, Masterpiece Cake Shop case, what turned on this, on this, these issues, it turned on this kind of animus. I mean, the, the, the fact that you stand by these comments is extraordinary to me. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. So the, the, the statements that he's discussing, and this goes back to, do you remember we, we played a little bit of the audio of Amy Coney Barrett during her confirmation hearing for the ju judiciary, the federal judiciary? This was not a Supreme Court nomination, but she still had to come before the Senate Judiciary panel and be queried on her her statements, positions, rulings, etc. And they got into uh, the kind of Catholicism she practices, where it's like a mentorship thing. I forget what it's called, but it, it is a different sect underneath the umbrella of Catholicism. But it really sounds more like like the difference between Baptists and Evangelicals. So still brothers and sisters in the faith, but, you know, a, a few differences. And they just just it was brutal, especially Cory Booker asking her about gay sex. I mean, he was so vulgar and so disgusting. I, I, I was like thinking to myself in a real world where I'm the person I am with the temper I have and the temperament that I have which probably means I could never be in the role that Amy Coney Barrett is in where she's been a judge for all these years. She went to law school and all that other stuff. But still, I just try to imagine myself in her shoes and just sitting there instead of getting up and walking out because getting up and walking out means you can't be, you can't, you, you have to finish the confirmation hearing. You can't get confirmed without completing the hearing. And I was trying to figure out if I, if I would have been able to do it, to sit there with that disgusting man saying those horrible, awful things and just take it. And maybe I would have been able to, maybe God's grace would have extended to that. And I would have just been able, you know, cause if you're meant to be there, you're meant to be there and God, God is his grace is sufficient, but wow, so disgusting. And so you've got this guy, uh, Bergram and he just, he, he tried to play the simpleton, but it didn't work. Josh Hawley was hearing none of his simplistic, oh, I don't really think I understand what you mean type garbage. He was saying, you know, either you believe that Catholics who believe the word of God and practice Catholicism are like the KKK or you don't. And he kept saying he didn't, but then he said, I do. <laughs> he, he couldn't, he couldn't figure out what side of that thing he was on. 
and he shouldn't be confirmed. Now, over at CNSNews.com, if you click on the video tab, you can see where a number of the senators are already coming out saying, you know, even even some of the Democrats who are Catholics, they're like, well, I mean, you know, I'm a Democrat, but I am I am still a Catholic. You know, some of them have gotten insulted by the insinuation that it's the Democrats who are making the Catholicism a part of a religious test. But it, it who cares about you being insulted? Remember, facts don't care about your feelings. You on the Democrat side are the ones who have made it an issue. And if that's the way you want to roll, fine, but don't expect anybody else to go with you on it. I, 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 it is beyond me why this guy gets the nod from President Trump and gets put forward. Maybe it was a mistake. Maybe it's a clerical error. Or maybe they're putting him forward because he serves a purpose to teach other Democrats. Don't, don't come up here with your religious test because you're going to get smacked down. This is still America. And if that's the case, so be it. But I don't see him getting confirmed. And, and it's my hope that he doesn't get confirmed. But if he does, my pen is ready to write down the names of those who vote to put in someone who actually thinks that sincerely held religious beliefs under Catholicism are akin to the KKK. I have, when, when have we last heard of Catholics riding around uh, burning crosses in people's yards and killing black folk? Have we heard of that? Oh, Okay. So I don't know what kind of comparison he thought he was making, but hopefully it means the end of his judiciary career because people like that belong in the private sector where he can be a bigot against religious people. He can do that on his own time, not the time that taxpayers pay for federal judges to actually hand down rulings that are supposed to be adhere to the Constitution, which, by the way, gives us religious freedom. Remember, we have our rights under the Constitution, the right to the free an unencumbered practice of religion, the free press, free speech, freedom of assembly, and the right to protest and address our grievances with our government. Any potential judge who doesn't agree with those rights as they are enumerated in the Constitution for every American, that person cannot sit on the judiciary. That should be the standard. It should be a no-brainer. If you come across someone who is going up for a judiciary appointment and they can't say those all, all five of those are something or a thing or a constitutional thing, then why should they be there? They shouldn't. So even Romney, chief rhino in charge of rhinoism for the rhinos of America, said that we need to review the full record of the Trump nominee who compared Catholicism to KKK racism. Even old mittens, I'm a rhino for this day and this time, Romney. At the U.S. Capitol on June 5th, CNSNews.com asked Senator Romney if Michael Bulgren should have his nomination withdrawn. And he said, I'll look at the full record of an individual before I make a statement like that. Even old mittens can't get behind this guy. All right, we'll be back with Jarrett Stepman. Stay there. It's amazing, but true. When it comes to one of America's biggest household expenditures, health care, A lot of people think they've got no choice. People are used to thinking we have to do it this way, but they don't. Yes, you have the freedom to choose an alternative with your health care. It's MediShare, and it costs way less than the alternatives. The typical family saves $500 a month, not a year, a month. And if you're single, this can save you a lot too. And let's face it, a big reason MediShare is 400,000 people strong it just works. They've shared over $3 billion in medical bills, so they can help share your needs too. Joining MediShare for so many people is one of those things that makes you say, why didn't I do this before? 
So yes, the time has come for something better. Look into joining MetaShare and see why so many people are opting out of the old way and into the new. Why not look into this? Just call 855-PSALM-23. That's 855-PSALM-23. 855-PSALM-23. This is Viewpoints with Kirby Anderson. You know, sadly, it has become trendy in some circles to say that the world would be a better place without religion in general and Christianity in particular. I really do wonder if professors, commentators, and people on social media really believe this or just saying it without any serious reflection. As I like to sometimes say to my atheist acquaintances, I see lots of Catholic hospitals, Presbyterian hospitals, and Baptist hospitals. I've never seen a humanist hospital. In his book, Unimaginable, What Our World Would Be Like Without Christianity, Jeremiah Johnson explains what the world was like before Christianity and what the world would be like without Christianity. He then concludes by talking about the benefits in a world with Christianity. He was in my radio studio talking about the influence of atheism on our world and then concluded by talking about the positive influence from Christianity in our world today. For example, there are an estimated 350,000 religious congregations in the United States, and the vast majority of them serve in some capacity as a community safety net for those in need. We also see churches and faith-based organizations helping out in disasters. So what is the economic impact of faith in America? According to one study cited in the book, religion's $1.2 trillion impact is more than the global annual earnings of Apple and Microsoft combined. Or you can look at it another way. How much do we save in social services because these are performed by faith organizations? Rodney Stark of Baylor concludes that the total current savings to U.S. society is $2.67 trillion. The book's facts and figures are a vivid reminder that the positive impact of Christianity and society is indeed unimaginable. I'm Kirby Anderson, and that's my point of view. For a free copy of Kirby's booklet, A Biblical View on Anti-Semitism, go to viewpoints.info slash anti-Semitism. Viewpoints.info slash anti-Semitism. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Hey friends, welcome back to the show. It's my pleasure to welcome our next guest, Jarrett Stepman, who's the editor and commentary writer for The Daily Signal, one of my favorite websites, and co-host of the Right Side of History podcast. Jarrett, thanks for coming on today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's great to talk to you. I'm really interested in this popular vote. So we've had a Heritage guest on a couple of times, um, John York and some others, to talk about the national popular vote effort because it's something that to me is so I mean, it's so frightening because it's one of the very bedrocks of the kind of government that we have that has really made us the envy of the free world and the unfree world. And that is that we don't have to worry about the tyranny of mob rule. And so for states to say we don't like Donald Trump, we're going to eliminate the Electoral College. I'm just I'm flabbergasted that Americans can't see that what goes around comes around. And one day it could be conservatives voting down Democrats because there are more of us than there are of them. And then they would say, well, we need the Electoral College. But it would be too late because it's gone. I think that's, that's absolutely right. And I think there is, unfortunately, I think a lot of narrow partisanship when it comes to this effort now to get rid of the Electoral College. And I think what's particularly disturbing about this move, movement is that instead of going through the traditional means of changing our Constitution, which is an amendment to the Constitution, this movement has generally embraced this kind of national popular vote compact, which is really a, a way to try to get around 
the fairly high bar that we have set uh, in this country. I mean, we haven't really passed, besides the, the initial Bill of Rights, 10 Bill of Rights, really passed 27 amendments to the Constitution. Obviously, it needs to be something that there's a broad-based acceptance of society. This movement really hasn't gotten that. They've gotten kind of a narrow uh, partisan movement to join the cause, and they're trying to go through that way instead of through a constitutional amendment. So I think it adds the danger of what's happening right now is that this really is an aggressively partisan, a narrow movement that is trying to force something on the United States and change our fundamental way we elect presidents in this country. And I think that's really playing with fire, something that has really served this country really over two centuries and created, I think, really the most uh, stable and, and uh, certainly representative system uh, in world history. I think that's not something that you just change uh, based on a single result from an election. And so they, are, they, they do, Jarrett, point to other times where they didn't have, they had, they had the popular vote, but they didn't have the electoral college. And I think there's, there's two things that are connected here. There's that, like the popular vote win for Hillary Clinton, which I am, I'm not a tinfoil hat wearer, but I don't believe that popular vote win was legitimate based on the number of illegal aliens we have in this country who live in states where they can get a driver's license and the number of illegal registrations, voter registrations and voter fraud that have been uncovered by Project Veritas, it makes me think that that is not exactly on the up and up. And then you connect that to their current love affair with illegal immigration and bringing people in and giving them status immediately, even though they're not citizens. And it kind of smells like a rat. Uh, sure, absolutely. I think one of the, the beauties, really, of the, of the Electoral College, and maybe one of the reasons why they're so desperate to get rid of it, is that those kind of issues oftentimes are contained. I mean, if we have, for instance, California that is very loose uh, with its, with its uh, election laws there, and it, it is not doing a good job of making sure that fraudulent votes uh, aren't being counted, uh, those that really is contained to the state itself. I mean, those California Electoral College votes, uh, they're going to go one way uh, no matter what, and in case of a national popular vote, you can see how manipulations of the votes, even on the state level, could actually have much larger implications in national elections, where there is almost more incentive to steal a few votes here, steal a few votes there, and you're starting to really change how elections turn out. In some ways, the Electoral College is a, a very good defense against, uh, frankly, voter fraud and things like this, because it does contain things to the state. It's done on a state-by-state state, uh, basis. Uh, so I think that's something that's certainly a factor in this kind of overall push to get rid of the Electoral College. It's a very stable, uh, safe system that the founders wanted to create because they wanted to create a kind of representative system, not purely democratic, and one which we could contain issues like fraudulent elections and things like this, some things that have ruined republics in the past, for sure. And so... This really, because in, in your notes for this, you, you say that the fact that Nevada and Maine, who are, those are liberal states, have rejected the National Popular Vote Compact effectively derails the movement because they, those are their last two states that they would need, the blue-leaning states, and now they have to go forward and try to find red states who would agree um, or, or shift their, their efforts to the swing states. Now, what's the danger in shifting to the swing states to try to get the National Popular Vote Compact passed? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this, this, this because especially because of Nevada and Maine uh, rejecting this, I think it makes their ability to, because what they have to do is they have to, according to their compact, they need to hit the 270-vote threshold. They currently only have 190 votes. Now there are only a few blue states. I mean, there's Oregon, which, which may be next, but... 
ultimately they're going to have to start appealing to states that are that are red, certainly red-leaning states, especially given the narrowness and the partisanship of this movement. That's a very tough case to make, especially because there are a lot of uh, progressive activists that want to make changes ahead of the 2020 election. Uh, that makes it much more difficult. And I thought that it's interesting that the Nevada governor, uh, who is a Democrat, uh, stood very strong on this issue, so that this is against the state the uh, the interests of my state, Nevada, which is a, a smaller state, which has been a swing state in a lot of recent elections, and saying essentially this movement goes against the interests of the people of Nevada, which I think is a very strong statement. I think it is going to be very difficult to convince more states in the future uh, that are swing states or are red-leading states to say, well, why am I throwing my, 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 electoral, my, my electoral power away, essentially? And I don't think that's going to be a very appealing thing. So I think that while this movement has gathered a lot of steam in the last year, there's been about five states that have signed on to this, I think they're starting to hit a, a certainly a wall in this overall movement. As they get closer to it, there are going to be a lot more states. They're going to think twice before they upend the American electoral system. So what, because I, I continue to have a problem comprehending how this is a lawful way to get rid of the electoral college when the electoral college is in the Constitution and we really actually have to have a constitutional convention or an amendment of the Constitution in order to get rid of it. How is it possible to do it this way? How is this lawful? Or is it that they, they know it's not lawful, but we would have to go to the Supreme Court to get it overturned? I think that's what they're, a lot of them are banking on. It's, it's interesting. In the past, I mean, it's, even Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, certainly hardly a, a conservative, uh, has said that she, she doesn't like the Electoral College, but she thinks the only way to get rid of it is through a constitutional amendment. I think the proponents of this National Popular Vote Compact are hoping that maybe they can get something done and maybe they can get this thing through the courts when push comes to shove. But as you said, this is something that really, uh, although the states have a great deal of leeway in how they carry out their elections, they can't actually pass laws that directly contradict things that are in the Constitution, which the Electoral College is. So I, I think this, this again, this, this movement represents certainly a danger, and, and, and as more states get, get along to this, I think it is a, very much a problem. But I think the proponents of getting rid of the Electoral College are going to have to contend with the courts. I think they're going to have to contend with a lot of the American people who I, I, I would hope will start to see that the Electoral College is a, is a valuable part of our electoral system and has served this country very well. And I think they will ultimately run up against that wall. But, I mean, look, I mean, things can, I think they're, they're trying to test things out in the courts. I think they feel that they might as well take this chance, given the fact that passing a constitutional amendment to get rid of it is highly unlikely at this time. Yeah, and the other issue is I read an op-ed by a conservative writer who said that the ultimately, if nothing else, if they were able to get to 270, they would then contest the results of the next election because it looks pretty certain that just like Barack Obama was reelected and a lot of us weren't happy, but he still was. The incumbent has the 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 upper hand. Donald Trump gets reelected, but the National Popular Vote Compact throws the legitimacy of his election ultimately to the Supreme Court the Supreme Court, which at the beginning of this movement was still a swing court, but now it's not. Now it's much more conservative. It's not fully conservative, in my opinion, but it's much more conservative than it was. But it would still be ultimately uh, a delegitimizing factor that would be much more damaging uh, to President Trump almost than losing, because this would mean that they would say, not only did you lose the national popular vote, but 
the Supreme Court gave you the win over the will of this many states and this many millions of people. Is, 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 that, is there validity to that, that thought process? I think there's definitely a lot of viability. I mean, after all, especially many on the left are trying to delegitimize this presidency to begin with. I think that to find a way to do so, uh, even if it doesn't mean outright winning an election, to try to undermine potentially a second term or things like that, I think definitely factors into this whole process. I think there's a reason why they're trying to build momentum for this movement leading up to the 2020 election. I think it's absolutely a campaign goal. And I have to say, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, no matter what side of the political spectrum you're on, I mean, shame on them for trying to change the American electoral system in this sense uh, because of a partisan loss uh, in 2016 uh, to try to influence uh, an election right down the line. I mean, that the fact is, if, if, if Democrats and progressives want to win elections, they need to spend a little more time convincing people in some of these states that have gone to the other side, like you know, states like Michigan and Pennsylvania, uh, instead of trying to rack up the national popular vote, which Hillary Clinton did in her 2016 election, focusing on some big cities to try to move that national popular vote up, instead focusing on doing what the actual Electoral College is supposed to do, which is get a broad-based consensus. And, and because a lot of progressives, and Hillary Clinton in particular, couldn't do that in 2016. Now they want to uh, you know, throw the board up into the air and blow up our American institutions that have served this nation so well. I think that that is a, a very revealing attitude from a lot of these people, and I think it applies, of course, to other institutions as well. They're going after the Supreme Court, going after the state of the Senate, things like this. And I think it is telling. When you start to play with fire, you start to mess around with the Constitution, I think every American should be... Uh, wary of that and should say that, you know, maybe we should think twice about doing this, something that served our country and served, served ourselves as a free institution in this country uh, so well for over 200 years. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. So one of the things that I, so, um, and I don't know if you've read this book before, you obviously have an understanding of the Constitution, but one of the books that I was recommended to me back when I first started doing some public commentary was The 5,000-Year Leap, which coincidentally, Amazon actually characterizes it or categorizes it as um, fiction or something like that. It's a book that looks at what, how the founders came to the form of government that we currently have. Most of us, especially if your civics was not complete and, you know, utterly well done in high school, we think that the founders came up with this, you know, there might've been some trial and error or some meetings. What we don't understand is that they actually went through experiments with different kinds of government before they actually decided on representative Republic. And the reason they decided on representative Republic is because tyranny of mob rule. And also at the time there were large population centers and then states and territories that were very sparsely populated. And they wanted each citizen to have the power of their vote be the same. And this is something that's lost on people who've not had civics. And so you're, you've, you've elucidated this so perfectly. I just want people to understand it's not, it's not like they just threw a coin in the air and said, you know what, this might work, Representative Republic, let's do it. This was careful, deliberative, and experimental. And then they yielded a certain result that they thought, this is what we want. This is the best that we can do. And we can't just let that go. We can't destroy that kind of thought and careful consideration with, you know, just because people are mad because they hate Donald Trump. Absolutely. I think it's interesting, especially at the, the convention itself, which, of course, there was a great deal of debate. There was a lot of differences of opinion. There were compromises to be made. But the Electoral College uh, was one of the things that had some of the most broad base agreement on. I mean, Alexander Hamilton noted that 
in Federalist 68, and he talked about the Electoral College as being this important institution that would preserve this idea, this concept of federalism, uh, protecting how states uh, do things differently in those states. I think that's an important concept that's being lost, I think, in modern America. And he said the electoral system that they created, while it wasn't perfect, because no human institution is perfect, it is excellent. And I think that that really defines what the Electoral College has been. And I think it's more than that, it has been time-tested over two centuries. I mean, those who keep saying that we need to get rid of the Electoral College uh, can't quite explain uh, what exactly is so wrong with it. I mean, are you saying that uh, the election of George Washington was a mistake? Are you saying the election of Abraham Lincoln was a mistake? Even though he only got 37% of the popular vote, he won because of the Electoral College. Was that a mistake? Was that a flaw in our system? I think that was actually uh, there by design. I think that was to show the strength of the system. And I think even the 2016 election, which they lament so often, itself was the strength of the election. Again, there were states like Pennsylvania and Michigan that uh, were felt like they were being ignored in, politi in politics, and you had a different candidate to appeal to them uh, in one election. That That's based on this kind of broad-based consensus that, look, we don't just have the large population centers that determine our presidents. We don't just have the Californians and the, and the New Yorks. Uh, we really have to get the opinions of, of the whole nation, and certain specific states have different interests over others. Uh, that's really the beauty of this system and why it functions so well, especially in such a, a large, broad-based republic like ours. And you know what, Jarrett? I have to say, uh, you know, one of the things that I th think, I still think to this day is so fascinating and I see it a lot. Like there's this book called How Money Walks by Travis Brown. He's he used to live in Missouri and they're in Florida now, but he still has a significant presence in the state. He wrote this book about how Americans tend to follow low taxation. So if your state has no state property tax or no sales tax or no income tax, it's rare that a state would have none of those. But if you have one of them uh, that you lack and a, a family is looking at their tax bill, say, in the state of Missouri, and let's say, you know, their total tax bill for the state of Missouri is somewhere like $12,000, and they could move to Nashville, Tennessee, and effectively save 8000 of that, so pay 4000 to Nashville or 12000 to Missouri. A lot of families look at that, they add that number up over time, and they say, this actually amounts to our college savings account for one of the kids, and they make that move. This happens every day of the year, Every decade, it happens. It's it's a constant people flowing out of high tax areas into low tax areas. And that's just one example of what the founders wanted for us, which was different states experimenting with ways to have their people live and other people choosing because they want that. Or maybe you want the high taxes. So you move to Illinois or New York or California. And that is what makes our nation so unique that we're not all forced to live in exactly the same way in every single state. And the Electoral College is just part and parcel to the beauty of that whole system. You've been awesome. Jared Stepman, editor and commentary writer for The Daily Signal. Thank you for coming on today, sir. Well, thank you so much for having me. All right. Talk to you again soon. Have a great weekend. All right. You know what? We have one segment left. And if you want to join us, I'd be happy to talk to you. 866-963-2037. Be right back. This is Kay Arthur. Are you hungry for love, unconditional love, because unconditional is what you need? You've blown it, made a mess of life, and deep inside you wonder if anyone could love you the way you are. God does, and that's why God let His only Son, Jesus Christ, die on a cross almost 2,000 years ago. Jesus died for you because God knew you would fail to measure up. That's how much God loves you. 
the Bible, God's book says, while you were a sinner, a person who failed and missed God's standard, Jesus died for you. But that's not all. God raised Jesus from the dead. Because Jesus lives forever, you can too. If you want unconditional love, dear one, and a new start on life, call 888-NEED-HIM. Let me repeat that. If you would like to speak to someone right now about beginning a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, call 888-NEED-HIM. I'm Will Addison, Director of Urban Family Talk. We desire to be a movement of time tellers. In 1 Chronicles 12.32, it says, The sons of Issachar were men who had understanding of the time, to know what Israel ought to do. In these perilous times, God is raising up a people of discernment who will see, pray, and act. We sound the alarm as watchmen. We cry aloud that God's people may be activated for His service. Join the movement at urbanfamilytalk.com. Hi, friends. There's a new show in town on Urban Family Talk, nightly, 7 p.m. Central. Join me, C.L. Bryant, as we build the bridge to conversation throughout our great nation, the greatest nation on the face of the planet, the greatest success story the world has ever known. Nightly, the C.L. Bryant Show over Urban Family Talk, 7 p.m. Military Matters. D-Day, 1944. General Dwight Eisenhower. Soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon the Great Crusade. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers-in-arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. But this is the year 1944. The tide has turned. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck. And let us all beseech the blessing of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. You can download episodes of Stacy of the Right from the podcast page on AFR.net or UrbanFamilyTalk.com. Now, back to the show on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Conservatives have ignored this issue for far, far too long, and here I'm not banging my usual drum about conservatives ignoring education, although that's part of it. Um, conservatives in the 1980s, during the Reagan, Reagan Revolution, won politically, and they won a lot of foreign policy victories, and they won some domestic victories. But what they ignored were institutions of culture, K-12 education, universities, the core of bureaucrats that runs the government, Hollywood, Right? Um, these are cultural and governmental institutions with enormous amount of power to shape public debate and in, in the case of education, to shape young minds. And conservatives essentially ceded those territories to the left and went home happy about their victories in the political arena in the 80s. I think we're in grave danger now of repeating that mistake. And that was Inez Stepman. She... Or, I'm sorry, Inez Felcher. Inez Felcher. She has actually been on the program before. She's from Independent Women's Forum. Um, Inez Felcher, she 
joined the program to talk about education. It's one of her hot button issues. And the point that she's making about conservatives winning politically but losing on the culture is why we have the kind of results that we're seeing in California that Fred Jackson and I were talking about uh, from OneNewsNow.com. We, look, this is – it's not rocket science, but it is something that we kind of do. We, we say – Let's get out the vote. Let's make something happen. We go knock doors. We share pamphlets. We make phone calls. We phone bank. We go do everything we need to go do. And then once we win the state legislature, then we go on about our business, working, making money, going to church, doing, you know, helping the kids at school. And then when we look up and they're trying to teach the kids about homosexual sex in the classroom and we're like, wait a minute, you know, we we don't have the power to stop them because a bunch of well-intentioned nincompoops, the parents of the other kids, are out there marching and sending out notes about how this one's a racist, that one's a racist. I had someone actually say to me, you know, I was really disappointed in you. I, and I know you guys are probably like, you, you're, if you're holding your coffee or you're typing on your computer, you're like, wait, what? Yes, someone came to me that I know who, she calls herself a moderate, but I mean, let's face it, she's like Mitt Romney. She's a, she's a leftist. She's disappointed me because she seems to remember me having a sign in my yard for someone that she considers to be a racist. Now, for the purpose of this story, I guess it's instructive for me to note that if you just tuned in, I'm permanently tanned and not really in the habit of making uh, racist my candidate. Uh, Yeah, I voted for Donald Trump. What? What of it? And this person who confronted me, she is not permanently tanned. But she still felt like she had enough, I don't know, capital between us or our friendship was strong enough or whatever she thought that she can actually try to call me on the carpet about a sign. Now, the interesting thing about the story is I didn't have that person sign in my my yard. I didn't. Not because I didn't support her, though. I did vote for the woman, but I didn't have her sign in my yard. So when I pointed that out, she again reiterated that the person was a racist and she knew she was one. And I said, well, I'm sorry, but why do you get to tell me who I can and can't vote for? And why do you get to determine whether or not she's a racist? I said, what if a bunch of people that I know think you're a racist? And the look on her face is kind of like, well, what, why would anybody think that about me? My child dates someone of, of you know, uh, ethnicities. My child is dating someone who is a person of color. And I said, I don't, I didn't know that. I did not know that. But in the hypothetical that I'm giving to you, the same situation, you're telling me this woman's a racist. I happen to have met her a few times. I don't think she's a racist. You think she is. What if someone said the same thing about you? Why, how, why do you talk to her? Why do you spend time with her? Why are you friends with her? She's a racist. She was like, but I'm not. I said, and that's the same thing I say about this lady. She's not a racist. That was convenient for you. You defeated her in the school board election and you were able to do that because you spread this rumor, but she's not a racist. So now what? And also, why do you feel like you get to tell me who I can and can't put a sign in my yard for? I'm a grown woman with mortgage and kids and husband. You can't tell me what to do. Now, where where does the story go? Well, what what I see is liberals feel like they have the right to address you on what you believe, who you support, et cetera. And we just want to be left alone. And so we keep to ourselves and we vote and we participate, but we're not out there actively evangelizing like this chick was trying to do to me. That didn't work. She went about it all wrong. If she's trying to get me to come over to her side on something, you don't do that by accusing me of supporting a racist. But the point is she didn't have any qualms about uh, just approaching me and bringing this subject up. And, and still to this day, sometimes I'll, I'll see her and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, you are just so like out of control. Like, why did you think you could? T- again, they don't have any qualms about it. 
So the most important thing we can do is get outside of our comfort zone, get outside of what we feel like we're, we're willing to talk about and start, start getting the truth out there. Start talking to these people about this stuff. Now, back to Inez Felcher. She was talking about this sex ed curriculum in California and how these parents rose up against it and what the result was. And, and I found this to be kind of shocking, but this is where we are, which is why I, I continue to renew my call to you that you must take your kids out of these schools. And I don't like losing. And I am not about running away. But when you're talking about your kids, it's not losing, it's winning. When you're talking about your kids, it's not running away, it's protecting them. Difference. So let's listen to her in number two. Look, we, we, since 2016, conservatives have held a certain amount of electoral power. We've held some of the levers of government. In, and since actually uh, 2010 and 2012, uh, conservatives and Republicans at least have held uh, plenty of seats in state legislatures, plenty of governorships, but they have not focused on where the left is strong and that's in institutions of culture. And this is in the end result of allowing leftist progressives to run rampant in our institutions of culture and particularly in K-12 education where for some reason conservatives uh, don't want to, to uh, prioritize the one solution that might actually change things, which is to give these parents who are protesting this curriculum. We have 800 parents in Fremont. Fremont is in the Bay Area. I promise you it is no bastion of conservatism. You have 800 parents signing a petition to prevent their district from using this framework. Their district is going to use that framework anyway. The only way to change things is to empower those parents with school choice, to allow them control over the dollars that all of us, the public, invest in public education because there's no such thing as a values-neutral education. And when conservatives got out of education, the progressive left got in, and this is the end result. And when they get in and they start peddling these ideas, fighting it is like, it's like fighting against water. Water always wins because water wears down rock. Water, water melts uh, almost everything else that comes into contact with it. It makes things rot. It makes things mold. Once they turn their faucet on, it's very, very difficult to fight them. It doesn't mean it's impossible, but it means you're going up against a group of people who they basically say to themselves, we'll just outlast you. That's what water does. We'll just outlast you. You will eventually leave. Your kids will eventually no longer be in the district, but I will still be here. I will still be able to enact my agenda. I will still continue to fight for these things and there won't be anything you can do about it. And so that it's, it can be depressing. It could be something where you're like, oh man, you know, I can't win at this, but you can. Ultimately, the winning is when your kids are sheltered from the influence that, they, that, that these people are trying to exert over them. Ultimately, the winning is when a family says to you, Wow, I never thought I'd say this before, but we're pulling our kids out. We noticed you pull your, pulled your kids out. That's winning too. Or it's when groups of parents who are in the district who they're not leaving, their options are such that they're not leaving, they get together and they start to form groups and fight back. They get people elected to school board. They start to change the tide. But in the end, if, if you've not said anything, if you've not shared the stories about uh, the, the sex ed classes in California, the push for Planned Parenthood to be in every single school district. They're already there. They're already in all the public schools. They're pushed to shape the curriculum around sex education, their desire to come in between parents and kids so that kids don't feel comfortable discussing their bodies and their, and their, you know, their temptations with their parents. These things 
have to be something that you're willing to have a conversation with your friends. And it's as simple as saying, you get the evite, evite.com. You go there, you click on one of the pictures you like, you invite a bunch of moms over by email and you say, hey, or you invite the moms and the dads. Come over for free appetizers, desserts, um, and, and we're going to talk about the kids' school district. And some of the parents are going to dismiss it. They're not going to discuss it. They don't, they don't have time. But the ones who show up, that's, that's it right there. Those are your people. And then you don't get off into tangents talking about the latest tax requests for the municipality or whether or not your road and your subdivision is being paved or the trustees. No, you don't talk about any of that. You make sure you have an agenda. You've written down, you know, here are some points that we want to cover Here are some news stories about our school district or things that are happening in the school district next door or things that are happening in the school district that our school district considers sister school district. Do you know who yours is? Most public schools have other school districts that they consider to be like they travel back and forth between each other. They share information. They share curriculum. They share best practices. Find out who yours is. You, You get those articles together. You make some photocopies. You or print them out on your home computer, print out a list of links of stories that you want people to read. You hand this stuff out, let everybody, you know, eat the little meatballs with barbecue sauce on them and and talk. And then at some point you clink the glass and say, everybody, you know, sit down around on the couches and everything and let's talk. I asked you to come here because blah. And remember what, what a lot of people I'm talking about this, you're thinking, I can't talk in front of 20 people in my living room or I can't fit 20 people in So meet at the library, meet at the coffee shop, meet in your basement. People live, we're all alive on this earth together. It doesn't have to be fancy. It's not your house that they're going to be looking at. It's the content that they're going to want to have an an, an opportunity to discuss with you. And and so you get your agenda together, you get your photocopies together, you get some hors d'oeuvres together, the people are sitting there, you have their attention, you tell them what's going on, and then you say... This, this isn't about turning you into an activist or turning you into some kind of like you're nobody here starting a blog. All we're doing is we're saying we pay taxes here. Our kids go to this school and we don't want this. Does anybody have any ideas and open the floor up and let people talk back to you about what they think they want to do. And then another thing you can do is so don't make it about politics. Don't make it about, uh, you know, what how many people in the room are Republicans? Nope. On, a, on an issue like public school where your kids go and everybody pays taxes, it's nonpartisan. The issue is, are you okay with them teaching our kids this? If you are, then you're probably not going to be interested in the rest of the content we have here. But if you think this is kind of crazy and kids shouldn't learn this at school, then we have, we have something to talk about. We got to start doing this. We can write our congressman, and I encourage you to do that. Send an email the phone calls are important, but the, I think the emails are best. Talk to these people. Tell them what it is that you want. Make something happen there by email and then follow it on with a meeting. Make sure that you're gathering people together so that you can get the most impact out of, out of your, your time together. And that's really all I can. Like, that's, that's, that's it. That's what you can do. Um, so I want to also, I, to, I talked to you about this email that Ali Pack sent out. And they're pretty angry with President Trump. 
And so we just have a couple minutes left here. I want to make sure you have that. They're talking about this amnesty bill, H.R. 6, that was passed by Congress, the House. Basically, it's a clarion call to illegal aliens to rush the border. Um, It would give amnesty to two and a half to three million illegal aliens who are already here. And we know that President Trump has said before that, you know, he he would sign some kind of amnesty in exchange for certain concessions on the wall. There is already an executive branch amnesty in place for 700,000 DACA illegal aliens. And there are obviously way more than 11 million illegal aliens. I hate that number. Um, So there's also these Republicans who've not been good to us. They keep voting for these illegal alien schemes. Congressman Don Bacon, Republican, Nebraska, Maria or Mario Diaz-Balart, Republican, Florida, Brian Fitzpatrick, Republican, Pennsylvania, Will Hurd, Republican from Texas, Dan Newhouse, Republican from Washington, Chris Smith, Republican from New Jersey, Fred Upton, Republican from Michigan. Those seven are they're they're a part of that head rhinos of America in favor of rhinos running everything into the ground, secret closet Democrats, but rhinos on paper and in real life. That's who these guys are. Mitt Romney is one of them, but he didn't vote for this. So what we have to do is make sure we keep a list of their names and we have to keep the pressure on the president not to sign any amnesty. We cannot have um, our support of the president on so many other issues like the pro-life issue blind us to the fact that he's very susceptible to yielding on immigration because it is such a huge problem and he's getting no cooperation. And the Republicans who are against him on immigration are applying pressure as well. Not the kind of pressure we can see, the behind the scenes kind that actually yields results. Let's continue to pray for the president over our meals and hold these people accountable at the next opportunity when they're asking for our vote. You don't have to be rude, but you do have to say you didn't support Americans on sealing the southern border and therefore you cannot have my vote and I will publicly oppose you at every turn. That has to be our response to those who would stand against our wish for a sealed southern border. God bless you from the heartland. Have a fantastic evening. Until tomorrow, Stacey Washington.